My name is Barbara Bartolome, and I live in Santa Barbara, California for the last 40 years. Prior to that, I grew up in Salem, Oregon. And um, my near-death experience, actually, there are two of them, and I only knew about the one that I actually remember, um, which happened at 31 years old. I never knew about the one that happened during my childhood until my older brother, my oldest brother, disclosed it to me when I was 55 years old. He had seen me die when I was 18 months old, and he had uh, watched uh, the whole process, and I ended up coming back into breathing again, and the ambulance took me off, and to the hospital and so he was told by my parents never to talk to me about it and so were my other siblings that were older than me so I never found out about it no one told me about it but when I was 31 years old I was here in Santa Barbara and had a near-death experience by a uh, myelogram that I was having done at a hospital here and a myelogram is injecting iodine dye into the base of your neck and that's where they were doing it for me um, into your spinal cord because they were doing an x-ray type of test to see if my lower back where i was having surgery the next day if the disc that blew out in my lower back had chipped my spinal cord and if i was losing spinal fluid then they were going to have to repair that the next day as well so they were testing me prior to doing a laminectomy discectomy surgery at the hospital and it was the night before the surgery and unfortunately the um, x-ray tech that was with another person the two of them were working on the machine to do the whole process um, he pushed the wrong button on the machine and instead of lifting my head up and lowering my feet he pushed the wrong button so he lowered my head and raised my feet and the dye that they had just injected into the back of my neck uh, went into my brain pretty quickly and within a minute or so I was uh, up on the ceiling above my body and uh, I uh, looked down very calmly I didn't know what was going on um, I knew that I was really panicked in my body down below before I had left it um, because I was hyperventilating <clears throat> and I I knew something was wrong, but once I left my body, I looked down at it and I, I said, huh, if I'm up here and my body is down there and he's calling code blue, then I think I just died. And when I said that, there was the presence next to me of what I felt was God. And I wasn't a particularly religious person, but I was a spiritual person, and I think that spirituality came from that first near-death experience that I had because I had always felt that God was real. I didn't need to go to church to, to you know, know that. My parents didn't go to church. Um, I went to different churches, but I always felt that that wasn't the real God. I felt like that was man, and that wasn't that wasn't feeling good to me. And so I went to, to talk with my friends, went, maybe went to that church, or I went to, you know, experience it, but I, I didn't really ever feel connected. I felt connected straight up to God, and I uh, didn't think I needed ever anything in between us. And so um, 
what ended up happening was that the neurosurgeon and the orthopedic surgeon that were in the room at the time of my near-death experience, um, everybody went into kind of a panic mode because I had died and they hadn't expected it. And they were calling out orders to the two x-ray techs and the nurse that was in the room. And uh, the nurse that was in the room was calling for an oxygen cart, a defib unit, a heart monitor on the phone um, saying, stat, stat. The oxygen cart came in. They had been doing CPR. The two x-ray techs had been doing CPR on me. Oxygen cart came in. They connected the oxygen mask up to my face. And so they stopped blowing into my mouth, but they were still doing chest compressions. And um, this man came in and he had a small box and he put it on a shelf behind the table that I was laying on. And he started, I was watching all this from above and I was talking to the being that I felt was God saying how much I wanted to go back into my life. Um, and I, I had, I had been in a, I had been for seven years in a very abusive situation with a husband who would fly off the handle and get upset over smallest of things. And, um, he would hit me and push me and kick me and shove me and berate me. And, um, he was also doing it to the oldest, my oldest son, who was about eight years old at that time. And, um, so I, I was asking the being if I could go back into my life because if I left my little baby daughter was only five months old and if I left both the children uh, in the care of their fathers, my son was from a previous husband that I had married and divorced pretty quickly. Um, but if I left the children in the care of both of the fathers, then they wouldn't have grown up to be loved and cared for and and they probably would have been abused by the second husband. So I was asking to go back into my life to be able to protect them. And um, about, I would say, I was dead about 10 minutes. And um, the neurosurgeon at the end of the time when they started, when they did actually, when they did resuscitate me, um, the neurosurgeon said to the orthopedic surgeon, too much time has passed. She's going to be brain dead. We need to do something. And the orthopedic surgeon said, stand clear. And um, I had, by the way, I had seen my actual flat line, the guy who had the little box that was on the shelf, it was a heart monitor. And when he connected it up to me, I actually watched my own flat line happening. And um, so the orthopedic surgeon said, stand clear. And he used his fist and he swung it from behind his back and he just came down really hard right on my chest. And I watched my body respond to that from up above. I didn't feel it. It didn't hurt. Um, but I watched my body kind of jerk because he had struck it so hard. And up above, the being, which I had been saying how much I wanted to go back, finally spoke in this very, very beautifully oh, gentle and loving voice. And I just, up there, I was feeling like I was wrapped in this beautiful blanket of love. Um, if it hadn't been for my children, I would have wanted to stay, but the safety of my children overruled that. And this beautiful voice said, but if you go back, you'll still be in your marriage. What will you do? And showed me these film clips that just went flash, 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 flash in front of my face. And it was all these incidents that the current husband had been doing to harm me. 
And uh, after they all flashed, then there was this, you know, quiet moments where I thought of all the things that I had done to try to help him change his behaviors in the course of our marriage from, you know, writing a letter stating I wouldn't, you know, accept the abuse. Um, I moved out for a year and he begged me to come back and said that he had counseling, but he had not. I had taken him to a marriage family therapist during the time that I was with him. He'd rejected that person after three or four sessions. I took him to a pastor of a church. And um, after one or two sessions, he said, I'm not doing that anymore. And um, he would always apologize after he did the things and the incidents and stuff. But he would say that he was never going to do that again. And he was so sorry. But of course, it would happen the next time he was angry. So as I looked at all of that, and I thought about all the things that I had done to try to help him change, it came to me clearly as could be. It was not that he needed to change. It was that I needed to change. I needed to not accept the situation any longer. And even though I was scared of him and scared of moving out and scared of what he would do to me, needed to do that. So I said to the being, if you let me go back, I promise you, I will get strong enough to leave him. And the second I said the word him, the doctor did the second precardial thump, which is the strike to my chest. They only do that as a last ditch effort to restart someone's heart with a very strong blow because it may trigger the heart back into beating again. It's a last ditch effort that when they can't get the defib unit in there to shock the chest with the defib unit, they strike it with their fist. It hardly ever works. Well, the second time it worked for me and I had just said the word him, I will get strong enough to leave him. And when I said him, um, I was back in my body. Just one second later, I was just up there one second and the next second I opened my eyes and I was in my body and I had the oxygen mask on my face. And of course they were pretty shocked that I opened my eyes and I said into the oxygen mask, what just happened? And the nurse leaned over me and said, stop, don't talk. We need to stabilize you. And so for 20 minutes, they did whatever they had to do to stabilize me. And finally, they took the oxygen mask off. And the neurosurgeon and the orthopedic surgeon were standing there. Both the x-ray techs were at the top of the table. The nurse was standing next to the two doctors. Another nurse was in the room. And the guy who had the heart monitor was in the room. And another nurse was over by the phone. And I said, what just happened? I was up on the ceiling and I could see and hear everything. <clears throat> well, the neurosurgeon said, oh, brother. And that at 31 years old, I <clears throat> had never done wrong things. My mom had been a police officer when I was young and I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I never did drugs. I wanted to be believed, and I said, <clears throat> no, I saw everything that was going on. You said this to him, he said that to you, this person did. Then um, I, I completely recounted to them what had happened in the whole room while I had been laying there flatlining. And they all were shocked, but it was the neurosurgeon, as I was talking, he clenched his fists next to his body and he pulled him up next to his body and he went 
I'm not going to stand here and listen to this. And he stormed out of the room. So he was really freaked out <laughs> over me being able to tell what just happened while I had been flatlining. <clears throat> but the orthopedic surgeon, after he was, after the neurosurgeon left, everybody else stayed. And the orthopedic surgeon took my hand and was very gentle. And he said, tell me what happened. How did you feel? What was it like? And so he was asking questions and interested in this situation. And uh, they then, once I was, you know, ready to go up to my room, they put me on a gurney, sent me up to my room, and then no one in the hospital would talk to me about what had happened. In fact, the next day when they did the surgery, the neurosurgeon and the orthopedic surgeon were coming into the recovery area after the surgery. And I said, what happened last night? What was that? Because it was very alarming to me that I'd never heard of anything like that before or read about it or anything. And the neurosurgeon put his hand up and went, I am not here to talk to you about that. I'm here to talk to you about your surgery. And so I was very closed down by, you know, people would just like, they didn't want to say anything about it because it was the liability of the hospital because of what had happened with the person who pushed the wrong button on the side of the X outside of the x-ray table. So um, when I told my, that husband that was the abusive one that later that day when he came um, with my little baby daughter and my son, um, he said, well, that couldn't have happened. You probably hallucinated that. And that closed me down even more. So I didn't talk to anybody about it for about 12 years. And finally, a nurse friend of mine, a woman, um, I spoke to her about it. And she was the one who told me it's called a near-death experience, Barbara. There are many people who have had these. We see these happen in the hospital. And uh, there's a lot of information online about it. So if you, you know, Google it and find uh, a couple of the websites, you'll, you'll find out more about it. So that's exactly what I did. And um, I ended up getting asked to go to a conference for the IANS organization, uh, which is based in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. And um, at that conference, I got to meet about 50 other people who had had near-death experiences. And we all sat in a large circle and each person disclosed what their near-death experience was like. So I heard all of these other people and it really validated it for me because I had never heard of it before having it happen to me. So this was like, you know, 15 years later or something that I finally got comfortable with it. So I ended up starting a group here in Santa Barbara to support people who have had near-death experiences. It's part of the IANS organization, which is International Association for Near-Death Studies. And they have groups in Seattle and you know, all over the United States, actually, and Europe as well. So there are group leaders like myself who have the meetings. I do mine once a month, and we bring speakers in that have had a near-death experience. And we also have a support group with a person who leads that, that, you know, lets the experiencers talk with each other and, and have more comfort in the situation that they've gone through. So that's what I do with my life now that I'm retired from the university and um, I travel at all the conferences and I um, also am open to people calling me if they've had an experience and talking with me about that. And so um, I keep my, my door and my heart open for those people. So um, that's what I do with my life now. I realize that that's my, that's my real purpose. And, uh, and my husband is very supportive of me with it. And so 
it's a, it's a it's a wonderful thing that I feel like I'm giving to others, and I really want people to know that it's a very natural thing that happens, and you can't you know expect to have everybody understand it, but if you come to you know grips with it, it becomes a really big gift in your life. So that's what I try to do is tell them about that. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I believe that now that I've had this experience and I've been able to, you know, adapt it into my life, I firmly believe that we're here more than one life. I believe that we're here to grow our soul and we come in in different lives to experience maybe being different colors, maybe being different religions, maybe being different sexes. And we experience that and we grow our souls by doing that multiple times. And I really feel that love is the absolute answer to this world coming out of the negative and, you know, hostile situation that it has been developing over the course of centuries. I really feel that, you know, finding love for everyone, not seeing differences, being kind, finding ways to reach out and touch somebody that day and help them in some way, even if it's just a smile to a baby in a shopping cart, be the person that you'd want to be able to see your life review at the end of your life and say, wow, I touched a lot of hearts in my life and I did a great job at that. That's what I feel is our focus. We should focus not on money, not on having a big house. If you have all those aspects, then find ways to use that money instead to help others and to do good in the world. I just, I really feel like we should all be looking at how can we be better humans, better kind people, better helpful people, better loving people and accepting people. So that's, that's what I feel is the most important thing that you can focus on. It's not about the pile of Christmas presents underneath your tree. It's instead, how can you find some person each day, maybe, that you touch in a way that you feel that, you know, you've given them a gift of something, even if it's just a smile or it's a touch of your hand and say, you know, how are you doing today and caring about them? There are so many people that need that. And so that's what I enjoy doing. And that's, that's what my life is about. 